You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them, love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like and you can fucking pick someone else to help you and you can bring your fucking dinner. She's 10 yards inside her own half with overhead kick. Liz Cooper, what a goal! Now, you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh he has to. No! Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin Will He Score. It's Series 7, Episode 8. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And the man for whom the 90s is only just beginning, it's Michael Marden. Hello. How are we? I'm very good, actually, yeah. I'll be honest with you. Uh, am I allowed to have some current football chat? Yes. Maybe. But, uh, we, won't make, we won't make a habit of it. But every time Manchester United win and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer secures his job further I think of Michael and it makes me laugh well I said this to Josh on a whatsapp the other day it's like I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship with a girlfriend you really want to break up with <laughs> but she either keeps buying you a nice gift or it's a day or Valentine's Day just coming up and you just can't bring yourself to do it. I'm like, just cheat on me so I can end this. <laughs> Only Gunnar Solskjaer is such like your, your school girlfriend and you're now in your 30s, isn't he? Yeah. Like, he's such, it harks back to a golden period. But, but the, oh. it's gone now, hasn't it? There's no oh, love God. there. Yeah. And can we just say we've all been Oli Gunnar Solskjaer in our time as well? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking this winner Everton will sort things out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That win at Everton was just really pedestrian intercourse. Yeah, I've done it. I, I got married as only only going to social. That, that was my that was my PSG victory. I thought, yeah, marriage will fix this. Uh, we've got Mike Ingham today, who's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I loved doing that interview. Uh, but before that, should we have some correspondence? And then, obviously, the nineties o'clock news. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. I cannot tell you how um, alight the emails have been with discussion of long throws. <laughs> <laughs> is this the new Mark Who's is good at volume? I'm going to do a, I'm only going to talk about long throws this week because I've had so many emails about different aspects of long throwing. Most of them, a lot of people have pointed out that we haven't mentioned Andy Legg. Oh, who was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow, yeah. <laughs> So Andy Legg, who was a big long thrower, um, (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> straight into the, the long throw hall of fame is Rory Delap, Dave Chaloner, and Andy Legg. Uh, Can we actually start everyone. that? I'm up for starting the long throw hall of fame. Yeah, this feels like we, yeah. since we've had the Phil Thompson directory, we haven't had a club yeah. that we can bring people into. Yeah. So thank you to everyone who um, brought up Andy Legg. But just one at random uh, that I picked is Christopher Weaver, who was a fan of Birmingham City, so experienced Legg firsthand. There's another person whose name escapes me, I apologise to, who used to go and watch uh, Birmingham or whoever it was that Andy Legg played for. And every time Andy Legg would uh, pick up the ball for a long throw, his dad would loudly proclaim to a stra- any stranger listening, more like Andy Arm. <laughs> That is rubbish. That's the new uh, Kitson Shitson or Hearts and Fartson. I love the commitment, though. I love that he's trying yeah. that every single week in the hope that it will get more. <laughs> Hoping this is the time. He's deliberately not bought a season ticket so he can change his spot in the ground every time so it's not to the same people. <laughs> Do you know what? I should credit that person. We've we've um, all sat next to at football in our time next to someone who's got a joke they think is really funny and we'll just keep saying it, especially if you've had a season ticket and you know that the same person. There yeah. was Steve Lomas back in the day, they used to say he looked like a... The one out of Scooby Doo, what's his name? Oh, Shaggy. Shaggy. So, the, yeah. someone I used to sit next to at West Ham would always go Shaggy every time he got on the ball. Every time, oh, and then look God. around oh, to God. see who he was laughing at. Oh God! Oh. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was Danny Cunningham's dad uh, who's uh, who said Andy Arm. Um, <laughs> I mean, we should definitely do Andy Arm merch. Add it to the list. As a Birmingham City fan, I distinctly remember him. Would we be in copyright infringement? I think we're right aren't we i distinctly remember andy lag appearing on soccer am attempting to beat the world record long throw which according to wikipedia he achieved 44.6 meters wow to make football even exciting down at sander andrews he was paired a six foot seven inch kevin francis can you name me which manager would have come up with that genius to put them together at birmingham i mean it's gotta be the fry master surely it is anyone <laughs> fancy a fry up you know what we haven't had that sting in a while let's just play it in for fun Great going forward, Foxy at the back, mate. <laughs> I can't keep a good man down. There we Great go. Great to wheel that out again. Would you like an email from a long thrower? Yes. So this is from Jamie Barkway. Hello. Just wanted to tell Josh how much I disagree with him about long throw-ins. I play as a centre-back for a non-league club, and long throw-ins are by far the worst thing to defend. The loopy ones are the worst, as a slow pace on the ball means it's almost impossible to get any distance on the header to clear it. It's also such a crowded area with everyone on top of each other, making it difficult to get a good contact on the header as a defender. Granted, it's not the chance that every striker dreams of, but a lot of time the ball drops inside the box even when the defender wins the first ball. There you go. Also, I have a pretty long throw myself. I only realised this a few years ago after I filled in at right back. I had to take a few throws throughout the game and realised I could hit the penalty spot. <laughs> what? From where? On Chris's point, I imagine there are a few players out there that don't realise they have a Rory Delap in their locker. <laughs> Tip, it's all in the back. <laughs> 
I do you know what I have always been surprised whenever I've thrown overhead, like thrown a football like a throw in. I'm always slightly surprised how far I can throw it. <laughs> oh, see, I'm the opposite. I've always been underwhelmed. I used to play it right back and I would dread getting a throw in on my side. But Michael, it's all in the back. And Chris, do you want to add Jamie Barkway to the long throw hall of fame? So who are we putting who are we putting in the hall the long Dave Challenger? Dave Challenger. Rory Delap. Andy Lag and Jamie Barkway. And if you want to if you want the reason I think Dave Challoner should be anointed as the first legend of the Hall of Fame. This is from Fred Taylor. I'm a 34-year-old Tranmere fan. I was delighted to hear mention of my club in your 90s podcast. The Pat Nevin episode focused far too much on his time at Chelsea. Astonishing seeing as he was at Tranmere from 92 to 97, having left Chelsea in 88. Just fair absolutely point. fair. Absolutely fair. However, when this week discussion to long throws came up, I knew my club was in for a mention. It was, however, very nearly missed with the various mentions of Rory Delap. Thankfully, Josh, in brackets twice, interjected with Do You Remember Dave Challoner? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good feature idea, just vox popping people on the street. <laughs> <laughs> I'd happily go to the pub on a Saturday and record on my phone. Not, the, not, not until lockdown's over, just to be very clear. Record on my phone uh, asking whether people remember Dave Challoner. Okay. One thing that always annoys me is that Challoner gets compared to Delap, but Challoner was unquestionably a better thrower of the ball. It wasn't really about the distance with Dave, it was more the flat speed of the crosses, meaning that it came in like a cross, not looped like Delap, regularly towards the far post rather than the near post flick ons. This is amazing what's coming. The importance of his long throws is hard to understate. The evidence is clear from the 99 2000 season when Tranmere had a double cup run to the FA Cup quarters and the Worthington Cup final. I don't remember that. No. no. FA Cup, round three, West Ham, 1-0 win, goal from throw-in. Do you remember that, Chris? What year? What year? January 2000, that game. No. Round four, Sunderland, 1-0 win, goal from throw-in. Round five, Fulham, 2-1 win, first goal from throw-in. League Cup semi-final, second leg, Bolton, 3-0 win, first goal from throw-in. These are up where with the most memorable goals and games in the club's history. There have been more, but it's hard to recall. Furthermore, you asked about how do players find out if they're good at long throws. A friend of my dad's, Tim Ledsham, was a PE teacher at a primary school. One of his pupils was Dave Challoner. <laughs> <laughs> he was amazed by how far Dave Challoner could throw the javelin from a young age without any training. And as a result, he taught him the mechanics and said it may come in useful for throwing a football too. I mean, that, that feels apocryphal. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I hope you find this useful, Fred Taylor. Thank you, Fred. I just Googled that. And yes, Tramid did beat West Ham in the 99-2000 season in the FA Cup away. It's credible. The whole email. The whole email is credible. The whole <laughs> thing's checked out. out. There we go. That is some of the input we've had. On long throws this week. Now, Chris, 90s o'clock news? Paul Walsh's social media goes dark. <laughs> and 90s football reacts to the election of Joe Biden. 
We're going to begin today with our second story. Uh, I've looked around to see how the world of 90s <laughs> no, football... You don't begin with your second story, do you? <laughs> hey, I, why do news stories start with... You want to keep people in for the main event. Okay. Now, this right. is how it's working on this 90s news okay. desk. Okay, fair enough. We're trying out a new, a new way of doing things. <laughs> Put the and finally up front, and then when it gets to the real serious stuff, people are more likely to be there at the end. We can start match of the day with Burnley v West Brom. <laughs> so, obviously, there's been a, a US election last week, and we, we know a lot of 90s footballers are quite politically engaged these days, so I've gone on the hunt to see how many people have reacted to it. I looked around the usual suspects for some pro-Trump voice, just for a bit of balance. Um, nothing from Latisse. Obviously, that was disappointing. <laughs> How do you think, Nothing after the event from Shilton, but plenty pre, oh, uh, including this prediction from Peter Shilton. I think Trump will win the American election because he will give them a strong economy despite the COVID virus, which won't last forever. The people know his character and flaws, but voted for him last time at real Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who, of course, did the Littlewoods draw once, so no doubt he'll be familiar with both Peter Reid and Peter Shilton. <laughs> and may well have seen, them, seen that when he added. Peter Shilton is as good at uh, predicting election results as he is at predicting fucking penalties. <laughs> I'm surprised Peter Shilton doesn't give his election results a day after and say, well, I went the right way, but I just didn't predict it in time. When Peter Shilton's coming out with some of this stuff, there are people, there are some doubters out there and there are people who politically disagree with him, of course, uh, and we are offering balance on this podcast. So I just, when Peter, Peter Shilton tweeted on the 3rd of November, I wonder if Donald Trump might do it with silent voters just like Johnson did. They beat and shocked the polls. And then someone's replied saying, yeah, they've done just as amazing as your record-saving penalties. To which Peter Shilton has replied, I'll take that as a compliment, shall we? Put your CV up against my list of achievements. I welcome you to the challenge, thumbs up. Um, <laughs> so Shilts bites on that. Shilts would always bite. Um, <laughs> Bringing up his record-saving penalties. And so to our top story this week. Astonishing decision. The order is astonishing. Listen to the viewers. The, the viewers would have stuck around for this now. They're like, okay, this is interesting, but what's the meat? And here we go. Top story this week. Paul Walsh's Twitter. So uh, thank you to um, Sid Lambert, who runs the Proper Football account. Uh, it was really good on Twitter. He pointed this out. Paul Walsh's 509 tweets have recently, um, well, just for yourselves. I'll read out a few about the recent ones. July 11th, RIP Jack Charlton. June 27th. Really sad to hear the passing of Theo Foley. Genuinely nice man. My thoughts and prayers are with him. June 18th. Really sad to hear of Willie Thorne's passing, RIP. If we go a bit further back. June 14th. Really sad to hear the passing of Steve Stammers, one of the few journalists I'd go out my way for. Fantastic stuff there. Uh, May 22nd. RIP Martin Ford. I have great memories of our young footballing days. Um, April 28th. RIP Michael Robinson. Glad to hear of his passing, top fella. April 6th. RIP Raddy. Uh, April 6th again. <laughs> Absolutely glad to hear of the passing of Raddy Antich. So basically, Paul Walsh's. Twitter, Twitter. Is it now it's just an in memoriam. <laughs> That's what he's using his platform for these days. And I mean, it goes back far further in time. He just than that. does RIPs. Just doing RIPs at the moment, Paul Walsh. <laughs> and that's why it's our top story this week. This is why we've got the 90s news. Does it get much traction? Um, Raddy Antich, the first one got 227 likes, the next one got 599. But I suppose he's got a connection to Raddy Antich because I think they would have both been at Luton, right? I mean, I don't know if that would affect me chucking him a like as I was going down <laughs> my timeline. Yeah, he's cross-referencing his Wikipedia. Did he play with him? No, no fucking <laughs> <right>. <laughs> 
But it's, I mean, hopefully Paul Walsh has got more going on in his life than people around him passing away. Yeah. Is, is it like, is he is it a bit Final destination <laughs> <laughs> I remember Paul Walsh as one of the few, like when I started getting into football, he played for Spurs. But I think before that, he played for Liverpool and Luton. He was one of the few players in that, those days with long hair. That felt mad. But he also, he had very thin long hair, didn't he? Didn't have much body to his long hair. I'm not, this isn't a reference in any way to his Twitter. I was just trying to think of, I was just thinking about Paul Walsh for the first time in my life. I've just had a, a memory, it's just triggered. I had, I got Paul Walsh's autograph when I was a kid. Oh, wow. When he was at, he was at Spurs the same time as Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, he was. My mum bumped into uh, Paul Gascoigne and got his autograph and then, Paul, Paul insisted they also get Paul Walsh's as well. Gazza insisted that oh, wow. get Paul Walsh's. So I got Paul Walsh's and Gazza's. And your mum came back and said, I got signatures of Paul Gascoigne, a man with very thin, long hair. <laughs> That's a Paul Walsh. <laughs> Paul Walsh. There's no one else it could be. Did he mention playing under Radiantich? <laughs> one of those autographs I really looked after and kept. And I, I think that's all we need to say yeah, about that. The other was full of split ends. Um <laughs> I really enjoyed the 90s o'clock news. Um, if anyone's got any 90s o'clock news or any correspondence about long throws, this is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. And big news on Sunday, the 22nd of November at 8 pm. It's Quickly Kevin live on your laptop, number three, quarter final three. And Josh, who will be competing in that fixture? Two absolute Quickly Kevin legends. It is Ivo Graham and Alex Brooker. They will be competing in the third quarter final to join Tom Crane and Ellis James in the semi finals. Uh, the last event, well, both events have been absolutely uh, two of the best Sunday evenings I've ever had. And um, I'm not going to lie to you, I haven't got much life. Uh, (laughs) We'll interview both of them, we'll take your correspondence, and then it ends with them both picking a team of their choice to play off in a Championship Manager 97-98 quarterfinal, which Michael will simulate and we can all watch. It really is as nerdy and brilliant as it sounds. Uh, If you want uh, to buy a ticket, then all you need to do is go onto our social media. The ticket link will be there. We will also send it out on the mailing list. So join our mailing list on quicklykevin.com. Or if you don't want to have to pay for a ticket, uh, every Patreon XJ8 member gets free tickets to all the Zoom live shows we do. So um, sign up to Patreon. There's lots and lots of benefits. There's loads of bonus free episodes, merchandise, etc., etc. But all Zoom live shows are free. So you'll be able to watch for free on Sunday. So if you want to buy a ticket, go on our social media. There's a link there to purchase a ticket for the night. Or if you want to sign up to Patreon, you'll get a ticket via that too. And a bunch of bonus content. Head over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. And if you want to see what the evening will be like, Michael, can we have a little clip of quarterfinal two? Why not? Right. So our first guest, Chris. He is comedian, friend of the show, star of one of my favourite episodes when we dissected Do I Not Like That. Please welcome, for the first time, to Quickly Kevin Live, Thomas Crane. Hello. Hi. Hello. Here he is. Hello. How are you, I had no faith that was going to work now, so I'm delighted. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Now, we said, um, we asked you um, to come up with a team on a theme. Now, um, yeah. Uh, have we said Matt, Matt Ford is obviously a Nottingham Forest fan, so he's coming from Nottingham Forest. Yeah. Uh, previously, Ellis came up with his worst Wales team, was it, or his best Wales team? And 
Tom Parry came up with his worst England team of the 90s. Yeah. Now, you don't really identify as a, um, a, a supporter of any team, which is fine in 2020. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, nowadays, yeah. yeah, it's acceptable nowadays. Um, so what have you chosen for your team well, theme? Well, this is kind of the idea behind it. So I was a Villa fan. I did. I loved Villa uh, as a teenager. And I used to go and watch them sort of Dwight York, Gareth Southgate, that sort of time. And then um, I sort of slipped away from a bit. I nominally said I was a Watford fan because family members were and they gave me a shirt and I felt obliged and sort of I felt I should probably say I was. But the truth yeah. is, I wasn't. I've also even flipped a point between England and Ireland because my dad was Irish. I felt it was whatever. So I've, I, so I've flitted around. I've never had this a team. So I thought in tribute to that, I have come up with a team made up entirely of nomadic footballers, footballers who've Lovely. never had a particular attachment to a club and more specifically have played for eight or more clubs in their career. That's I've got a first 11 Great of players. He's played for eight or more clubs. That's the. Uh, that's oh, that is that it. is great. How much research did it take? It took, yeah, a fair, a fair and well, yeah. It's got it basically. It was a perfect excuse to not do any parenting for about three hours earlier. Brilliant, <laughs> <laughs> loved it. Um, but I, I've I've gone with sort of people that I remember. You know, I you get memories of people flitting around from club to club and people and you, you buy on. Then double checks. Was there any that you thought you were going to put in, but then you checked and they weren't nomadic enough? We'll see. We'll see what you think of it. But yeah, yeah, okay, players yeah. That sort of sprung to mind were ones that I. Okay, well, well should we start with the goalkeeper sort of then? Okay, so what formation are you playing? I am going for five, uh, five, three, two. So wing very nineties, yeah, yeah, nineties, and then two holding. And I'm not sure if it's technically five, three, two because I'm pushing the central up one up to be an AMC slash F. You know, yeah, yeah, the, the classic man in the hole. Yeah. Man in the hole, exactly. Um, which on championship manager was basically the only player that mattered. That's, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. Everything well, else to... on that game was entirely pointless. It didn't. It... I, I wanted to ask: Have you? picked that formation specifically to give yourself a better chance at beating 40 well you may have noticed that the player who plays in that position well uh, well we'll see when you when you when you hear the person who plays in that position is considerably better than everyone else <laughs> <laughs> we'll hopefully getting a, we'll be getting a lot of the ball um uh, so yeah it, it was so okay. crucial it was everything and then two strikers of course yeah sort of flat line Let's so, have a look at your goalie then. Who's your goalie? So my goalie is um, the one and only, the sort of goal-scoring demon, uh, Jose Schillivert. Oh, I didn't know he was. No, I didn't know much about and his club He's played club for eight career. clubs, which actually is the least yeah. number of clubs in the whole team. Um, there's quite a, uh, Most players have played for much more than that. I put him in partly because I want the fun of him taking the free kicks and the penalties. So <laughs> yeah. um, he's going to be doing that. Uh, that's part of the joy. There were a few keepers who play for more clubs, but I like the fun of that. He, he just about makes a threshold, so he's in. Um, I was thinking about letting him take corners as well. That feels yeah, maybe a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, you well, wanted him on corners too. Is that, has that ever been done? Could that happen? <laughs> How good would you have to be at a corner to <laughs> take it as a go? I well, felt that with free kicks, though. But it's quite I a felt, risk of free kick, isn't it? Yeah, because if that free kick hits the wall... Like, yeah. I don't know if you are, can be good enough at free kicks that it's not causing more problems than it solves. Because how well, often are you scoring from a free kick if you're a free kick taker? Once every eight games? Yep. And well, so I've got his stats here. In 19, for Velez Sarfield, in 236 games, he scored 36 goals. So 
I mean, that's I, pretty good. But like, that's not bad, is it? But how many times is the ball hitting the wall or going in a position yeah. where the keeper can catch it? Yeah, I mean, he conceded one and a half thousand. It's worth saying, but he, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he did score. But you are right. But I guess what they would do is you probably drop a centre back back, surely, to sort of. Maybe that that must hands. be what you do. Yeah, it's rush keepers, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You, yeah, you see how he's handing on the gloves when he goes up for the free kick. <laughs> Someone's trying to... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Joe, Jose Hilleva is my... Uh, he just about makes it in. And technically, he actually went back to Velez Sarfield. So... I know, but yeah, I think it's okay. Did he play he's, in he's in, but you'll see the numbers from this point on rocket. Yeah. Okay. But he's my, uh, he's my guy at the back. Okay. This week's guest is an absolute legend. You'll recognise his voice from Five Live. He's our first radio commentator. More importantly, he was the BBC's head football correspondent from the middle of the 80s to 2014. Absolutely huge name in football broadcasting. This is Mike Ingham. Our guest this week represents quite a few firsts for us. He is our first to have received honours from the Queen, as well as being the first to have had the honour of broadcasting on the radio from almost all the biggest matches of the 90s and beyond for BBC Radio 5 Live. He was BBC's chief football correspondent for 25 years. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, our first voice of radio, Mike Ingham, MBE. Hello, Mike. Well, the pleasure is all mine. There's something lovely about interviewing people who commentate, their, their voice is very kind of warming, particularly, I think, Five Live, because when you've got, you've got it on when you're cooking or when you're driving or whatever, do you find people recognise your voice? It has happened uh, on, on a couple of occasions, but, but very rare. I mean, I, well, I used to love actually being totally anonymous. You know, I used to love being, that's why I was, I was pleased in a sense, because I've been out with people who work on television i've been out for meals and stuff and they're constantly getting hassled and all i, I hate it i would have hated all that i love going around uh, the local supermarket you know and buying whatever i want without people tapping me on the shoulder and saying oh you like that do you you know and um, <laughs> but i i always was myself and still am a great voice person i mean that's what i found utterly beguiling about the radio i mean radio was always on in our house in the 50s and uh, that was what I found so enchanting, really, all the regional accents, all the, but mainly the voices of authority, I think, um, which is one reason why nowadays I sort of, I don't buy into this business of got, you've got to have young people talking to young people on the radio. Because when I, when I was young, um, I, I used to, I used to love listening to some of the more avuncular characters, uh, who, who were on radio in, in those days. So I'm a great radio person, great voice person, and I'm very pleased to have worked in radio and unlike you, Josh, been on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know what, Mike? Wearing a mask, I really am enjoying anonymity again. This COVID's really helped for me. You, um, you're a big fan of, um, kind of, and inspired by a man who kind of indirectly gave name to this podcast, Brian Moore, aren't you? Well, when I became a correspondent, I think one of the things that meant most to me was the fact that um, I was in a role that. Only two others had 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 when one was Brian Moore. Brian Moore was the first BBC Radio football correspondent. He was he was the radio mm. correspondent when England won the World Cup, and then he was um, succeeded by another of my heroes, Brian Butler. You're probably too young to remember, but Brian Butler was just a master craftsman with the voice, a magnificent broadcaster. So they were my two predecessors. I was only the third football correspondent. And I can give you a little insight into what sort of a man Brian Moore was, because um, that infamous. Um, commentary clip that you have plagiarized mm. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> misquoted. So well, we've misquoted it, but it's too late. I interviewed Brian 10 days after that. Um, mm. And oh, it wow. was in Paris, and it was just before his final game, which was the World Cup final between mm. France and Brazil. And um, it was just so typical of, of Brian that he was still punishing himself for that batty penalty commentary because he thought that he'd... He'd handed Kevin Keegan a bit of a hospital pass, you know. He tried, mm. he, he, and he he tried to explain to me that when Batty stepped up to take his penalty, you probably heard all this before, but he he had Kevin Keegan alongside him, and he he'd known that Kevin Keegan had signed Batty for Newcastle, so he he really intended to say to him, right, how's he going to handle this moment? What completely threw Brian on the night was that Batty, typical Batty, just got on with it. You know, he put the ball, put the ball <laughs> down and took it. So when Br- Brian was embarking on saying, you know him so well, uh, and then it had to rush out the woolly score. And obviously, uh, you know, Keegan, what else could he say? He couldn't say no, could he? So by the time, he, by the time he'd said yes, um, the rest is history. But Brian was still beating himself up over that. And I was so engrossed in the interview that he was giving me and we must have talked for about 20 minutes. Um, I looked down at my tape recorder and I realized I'd left the pause button on and nothing had recorded. The whole oh. 20 minutes was blank. So I had to, with a very beetroot face, apologize. But typically, Brian said, he just said, not to worry, old son, always better second time round. And he did it all over again. And I can think of um, one or two people in football who would have, well, can you imagine, looked at their watch and said, not your lucky day, son, and walked out, you know. But um, oh, There's a lot of people in comedy entertainment that would not have stood for no, that, well, Mike. But it's a, um, that's a very gentleman's kind of... Um, I mean, I hope you have the same attitude when we realise we haven't recorded this interview at the end. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, no, my, my patience certainly wouldn't have been as as, as as thick as Brian's. I mean, Brian, I always just used to think about Brian. He was such a class actor. He was like the other Beemore, who I loved as well, the, the World Cup winning captain. Uh, mm. a great, great gentleman. And, um, the, you know, the next interview I did actually with Brian, Brian Moore, um, was a very sad one because I asked him to pay a tribute to Brian Butler after he died in the spring of 2001. And that was the last time I saw Brian Moore because um, in the autumn of 2001, um, we, we heard the really grim news of Brian's passing when we were in Munich for the Germany 1, England 5. Um, and that, of course, that had been England's England's greatest day against the Germans uh, since 1966, when yeah. Brian had been the commentator for BBC Radio. So it was very poignant. One thing that's just that I've just suddenly thought of is that Brian Moore's like that bit of commentary quickly. Kevin Willie score, like you've just said, it came within weeks of his retirement. One of the biggest faux pas he possibly made in his commentary career came like three weeks from the end. Well, I think that was the thing. I mean, he'd had such a wonderful career, and yet, despite all the things he'd achieved, he was still punishing himself as a professional for thinking that he'd not handled it properly with Kevin Keegan. And he apologised to Keegan, I think, straight afterwards. And of course, Keegan being a very phlegmatic character, so not to worry more, you know, just one of those things. But that was so just typical of of the high standards, I suppose, he set. And um, I remember, by the way, after that game, our producer going downstairs to to interview Batty, who missed the penalty. And I remember she went down and first of all, on her way down, she saw an incredibly distraught David Beckham sitting on his own because obviously he'd been sent off in the game. And um, she got to interview Batty about what was now becoming a well-worn theme uh, because obviously it had been tough for Waddle and Pierce in 1990, Southgate in 96. And she said to Batty um, something along the lines of, so how do you think, David, you're going to be able to cope with this now? Are you going to be able to live with this for the rest of your life? And he just said to her, I'm over it already. <laughs> 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 Couldn't. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, what a character. Did you have any dealings with Dave? Not dealings as it like, but did you have to interview Batty? Because he's one of the kind of most singular characters of the 90s. Well, he's one of those, um, I mean, most of the England players that um, I, I, I interviewed over the years, I mean, they that they were all very engaging. Some of them just um, didn't enjoy doing it. And he was one of them, I think. He'd rather, I always remember um, the, the most infamous one of all, the one that, ironically, now he's on TV as well, but I always remember Paul Scholes, who just ran a mile, you know, every time a microphone was anywhere near him. And uh, yeah. I always remember we asked him once at one of the tournaments, I think it was in Portugal. Now, Paul, what would you rather do? Do an interview for Five Live or have a teeth pulled out? Have a tooth pulled out? And he said, I'll have a tooth pulled out. Thank you very much. You know, It's mad that he's become a pundit, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know, I know. And he's a good pundit as well. Like Very, a very, yeah, no, very, just didn't want to talk about himself when he was a player. There have been a few like that, actually. There have been a few who've had a kind of, you know, um, rebirth as, as, as pundits who, who wouldn't, you know, say boo to a goose when they were players. But, I mean, that was a really good, I mean, I thought that, um, 1998 team of hoddles um i've been thinking about it again you know that's probably the just about the best england team i commentated on really Really? oh wow better than 96 and 90 i think 98 maybe just had the edge because um you know michael owen came through to partner shearer um they had adams and campbell who were the top of their game at the back ince was the protector beckham of course too and uh yeah i know i thought that was um that was that was a really good side and i know hoddle was very frustrated because he took Rio Ferdinand to that squad, just uh, on that squad, just for experience, nothing else. He didn't play or anything like that. But the intention was that after 98, he'd then bring Ferdinand through as a sweeper, you know, and, and, mm. uh, and he'd have him at Euro 2000. But, uh, you know, the rest is history. I mean, Ferdinand never went to a European championship. And, and then, of course, the man we'd just been talking about, Kevin Keegan, came in. And um, that's where I think England got the whole sequence wrong. I think that um, Venable should have carried on after Euro 96. He should have had the, the World Cup. Then Hoddle could have come in. And even Bobby Robson was around, you know, and they could have used him. But instead, they went down the, the sort of path of overseas management and it just didn't work at all. Uh, let's go back then to Radio Derby, uh, where you got your, you started out in the 70s. And there's a big figure that we're kind of obsessed with that you had. Uh, I mean, this must have been, as a young journalist, this must have been both terrifying and exciting. This was when Brian Clough was around Derby. What was that like? It was amazing. I mean, I first met Brian Clough um, 60 years ago uh, when I was in, in Plymouth uh, as, as a kid. And um, he was making a, an appearance at the co-op in Plymouth on the Saturday morning. <laughs> what, do you mean, what do you mean an appearance? <laughs> well, I think it was some sort of – in the sports department, he was endorsing some boot or something. I don't know. <laughs> But the, but the, no, this is the morning of the game. They were playing Middlesbrough in the afternoon, right? So they got nothing else to do. So they turned up at the co-op and it was it was him and Peter Taylor, already a double act. They were probably the first autographs I ever got because I went along. I read it in the Herald and said, oh, I'll go along. And I got Clough and Taylor's autographs. And then many, many years later, when I actually had dealings with them professionally, when I was at Radio Derby, I remember trying to remind them. I said, oh, Brian and Peter, I... um." Yeah, I met you in 1960. I got your autograph at the Plymouth Co-op. And uh, Clough turned to Taylor and said, I, we remember him, Peter. He was the one that didn't say thank you. <laughs> was he fun to be around or was he intimidating? Or what was he? I, I can't, can't get a handle on how I'd react to him. Uh, along with Ferguson, Alex, Sir, Sir Alex Ferguson, probably the two most intimidating managers I, I had to deal with simply because you had to watch your P's and Q's. You had to think about almost every question you should never ever with Clough put in any kind of opinionated question it had to be the 
why or how type question, you know. Um, and he, he was amazing. What happened, he'd actually left Derby when I got there as the sports producer, but he was at Nottingham Forest. But what happened was that quite a few of the Derby County players he'd had in the 60s had testimonials. So I used to go over to the city ground to get an interview with Clough and Taylor as a sort of tribute. And, um, you know, you'd spend about seven or eight hours there waiting for him. You get there at 10 o'clock, which was the agreed appointment, and you finally get him to see him about six o'clock in the evening, you know. And during that time, one of the staff would come through with a with a glass of whiskey for you, you know, expecting you to that would keep you going, even though he had to drive back to Derby afterwards, <laughs> you know. And one of the things about him, because he was such an accomplished television personality yes, as well, yeah. he, he always thought that he could do your job better than you could, you know. <laughs> And I remember when he used to he used to write a piece for the lo- a local paper in Derby, and it was ghosted for him by a local journalist, Mike Carey. And I always remember Mike telling me that he'd been to see him at Nottingham one day on a Friday, and he came in and said, "Oh, he said he said morning, Mike. He said I've got your I've got your headline for you. Yeah, I want, this is what I want you to write. I want you to write what a week it's been for saying bugger me." <laughs> And did you, he you, write it? I think it was toned down a little bit. <laughs> but I mean, at, at, the, at the end of it all, um, and this is something which um, is very emotional for me, actually, because when I left Derby and got the job in London, the, the family had a little leaving thing for me, leaving party. And unbeknown to me, my dad, we lived just down the road from Brian Clough in a little village called Quarndon. Hmm. Um, and my dad had decided, my dad was incredibly low profile you know it was so alien to him so out of character to sort of put himself in the foreground but he he decided to do this little this little sort of tribute program it's all clunk click with his cassette player and everything else little a little thing for me to, as a sort of farewell from derby and on a sunday morning he marched round to the clough household sunday morning at about 11 o'clock in the morning went down his long drive knocked on the door introduced himself. Nigel, actually, a little, only a little youngster in those to open the door. Now, I mean, 99 out of 100 people would have been just told to bugger off, you know. I mean, they, they just would have said, no, you know, on your bike Sunday morning, you just don't do that. But Clough, being the great family man, sort of saw the bigger picture here and invited him in and and then did this tape. And when I was writing the book, I actually still have, obviously still have the tape. And I listened to it for the first time in, oh, donkey's years. And it made it really made me kind of well up, really, listening to it. Um, but right at the end of it, um, Clough says that if ever he could help in the future when I got down to London, you know, just a phone call, put a phone call in and, uh, and, and you know, you've got a friend at Nottingham Forest. And I, I didn't play that card at all for about two or three years until a day when I had to, when they'd had a fantastic victory at Highbury against Arsenal. And I remember he turned down match of the day and everything else. And so I thought, right, I'll just chance my arm here. I just put a message into the dressing room and said, would you ask Mr. Clough if he'd do an interview with Mike Ingham for BBC Radio? And then this sort of eventually this sort of finger snaked through around the corner of the door, you know, and inviting me in. And um, and in I went and he did the interview. So he was true to his word. Oh, wow. It's kind of amazing that he just existed in such a kind of, you know, the whole thing was personality. And you you can kind of compare him to Alex Ferguson there. Was it What was it like to deal with Alex Ferguson? Was that similar or...? Well, they're very similar characters in a sense, in that they both had the sort of working class work ethic um, backgrounds, I think, great family people. Um, both, I think, uh, driven on also, uh, this is just a personal view, but I think they were sort of unfulfilled in the end um, in their playing careers. Ferguson mm. never really quite got to the top. Clough, of course, as everybody knows, had his, had his career taken away from him by injury. So that's what, uh, what, what, what drove them on. 
with, with, with Sir Alex, um, again, like Clough, I think there are lots of parallels, actually. Uh, incredibly single-minded and, and, and driven, and, and, and both could be incredible. They could, they, you know, they could be bullies. They could really, really intimidate you. At the same time, though, both men were capable of great generosity and kindness. They really were. I saw both sides of them. Um, I don't think we'll ever see the like of, likes of them again. And even when you think about what Clough did at Nottingham Forest, it just just it, you have to sort of pinch yourself really now to think: Did that really happen? Did that really happen? Just on Sir Alex, I read that um, you went to cover a United trip away in Europe, and on the flight back you got to your seat, and then Sir Alex got in the seat next to you. I thought, did you, did you manage to have a chat? Well, it, it was it was um, it was at the time when they were deciding about the hosts uh, for the Euro '96. It was all going to be announced in Lisbon. It's when England got the the you know the, the Euro '96, and they did this announcement around the Cup Winners Cup final of um, well, it, it was a cup final involving Arsene Wenger's Monaco, uh, and Ferguson was out there because Manchester United had won it the year before, and so we're flying back the next morning to London from from Lisbon. And I'd seen him. I'd, I knew he was at the game. I'd sort of seen him around the, the, the departure lounge, got on the plane. And, and then the nearer and nearer to sort of take off, I realised he wasn't on the plane yet. And there was only one seat left on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and look, hey, he's just a human being. and You shouldn't really freak out, should you ever something like that? But of course, you know, this was Alex Ferguson at the time, not Sir Alex. And um he sat next to me. Uh, we, we'd sort of, you know, we'd, we'd done a few interviews. I mean, I, uh, but we didn't really know each other that well at all. Now, I think I can think of a lot of people who would have just two and a half hour flight, buried their head in a paper, you know, and um, and just got on with it. But he didn't. He's not like that. I mean, he's incredibly gregarious. And we talked for two and a half hours. We talked about it, you know, all sorts of stuff. And then when I got back to London, it was actually that night was the night was the um, football of the year dinner in London. And I, and I, and I remember I had a, a, a car at the airport waiting to take me in and, and then he got in the car with me and we carried oh. on the conversation. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Did he talk to you about the JFK assassination? Because I've heard he's obsessed with it. <laughs> No, he, but he, no, he, I, I, I know I've heard that. No, no, but, 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 but what, what, what I did, what I did do a year or two later was go out for lunch with him and a few journalists in London. I do remember that the, the talk was mainly about films and movies. Oh, really? Um, what are his favourite uh, films? His all, all of his favourite films, and and I remember hearing that one of his great favourite films was one with Henry Fonda. Um, called Twelve Angry Men, where oh, yeah. I don't know if you've have you seen it. It's the one yeah, where the jury one. They they put they pretty much decided the jury that this guy's guilty, and and Henry Fonda's the one person who doesn't agree, and they they take an eternity, and eventually he turns them all round. I'm thinking, well, I could imagine Ferguson doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> situation you don't want to be up against a jury look to your right and there's alex ferguson as foreman that's an absolute disaster so then you you're at radio derby also can i just ask on radio derby on brian clough is it right in in your book you talk about um that your boss at radio derby when clough was going to move to nottingham forest you're sat there in the office and he's phoning clough up trying to convince him to go back to derby well, what happened was that um, Derby were floundering. I mean, they never really, although they won the title in 75, that was still pretty much Brian Clough's team. And Dave Mackay did a, did a wonderful job in 75. But they were on the, on the way and eventually Mackay uh, w- w- was, was sacked. And um, they had this new chairman in who, and his mission was to bring back Brian Clough. I mean, that was, that was really, uh, he set his stall out to do that. And 1977, we had this incredible day in February when uh, it seemed like Clough was coming back. And I remember waking up that morning and all the newspaper headlines were, you know, the return of Clough and Taylor to the baseball ground and everything else. 
And then as the day wore on, um, the, the, it, it emerged that, that in fact, he wasn't coming back. And, um, and he called this press conference to, to explain that, you know, although his heart still um, resided in Derby, he had a job to do at Forest and he was staying. And I remember um, the news editor, Barry Eccleston, who was our Derby County commentator, who was really well in with Derby and really well in with Clough. We sat together in the newsroom about half 10 at night that night. And he rang him up, rang Brian Clough up, and he was desperately trying to persuade him to change his mind. And, you know, I, I can remember thing, things being, I mean, Barry must have had the go ahead from Derby County to do this as a sort of go between, you know. And he was saying stuff to him like, well, you know, you come to Derby and if you want Trevor Francis, well, I'm sure they'll make that. And if you want Peter Shilton and, you know, I mean, but he, he, he didn't he didn't budge and, um, oh. you know. Uh, yeah, and, and and the rest, you know, Forrest went on to win the European Cup twice. Oh. <laughs> um, you then moved down to London to get a job on the sports desk at the BBC. So the BBC at this time is a kind of linked institution. You know, there's kind of heroes of radio, like John Peel kicking around. And he's a big football fan, wasn't he, John Peel? Yeah, he used to, um, one of the sort of graveyard shifts, if you were one of the newcomers, they always made you do the overnight, you know, which 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 involved doing a five to 10 sports desk and then sleeping in the BBC building next door, which was haunted, the building, by the way. And then you had to do the Today, Today programme the next morning. And and John used to come through at about half nine on his way to his studio because, you know, there were no there was no internet, there was nothing. I mean, he wanted the football results and the quickest way of getting them was, was from us, you know, with the, off the teleprinter in the sports room. Um, and he was an incredibly self-effacing guy, you know, mm. And, uh, and, uh, and but he, he was somebody I'd grown up listening to in the 60s. So it was it was just a, but walking into the sports room the first morning when I went down there from Radio Derby, you know, you walked in and um, on one side of the room, you had sort of Desmond Lyon and Brian Butler, Peter Jones, Jim Rosenthal, you know, wow. Christopher Martin Jenkins, all these people. <laughs> and um, it really was. Um, but then, look, it's like everything else. They become your friends. You get to know them, and things evolve. A lot, a lot of those characters left and went into television, and um, and then we became the next generation. And, mm. and it was really a bit like Radio Derby. It became a big, happy family. It was a great atmosphere in the old sports room at Broadcasting House, um, full of pranksters. Uh, the, I mean, one or two of the characters I used to work with, and sat, I, I don't know if you remember Peter Brackley, the football commentator. Yeah, yeah he did uh, Football Italia, didn't he? Yeah, he was a wonderful after-dinner speaker and sadly passed away, uh, you know, not too long ago, Peter. But he had a he used to do some of the voices for Spitting Image. Uh, oh, really? and, he, and he did Saint and Greavesy and, and things like that. And he was a wonderful, wonderful mimic. And, um, I mean, there would be some nights, and because he used to do the late shift himself, so he knew what you were going through. And he'd, he'd wait till 10 o'clock when you hit the pips for 10 o'clock, and then you knew that you were back in the sports room on your own. And the phone would ring. And he'd pretend to be somebody, you know, uh, and, 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 and he'd, um, he'd, he'd ring up, he'd, he'd pretend to be, oh, I don't know, um, Henry Cooper or somebody, you know. And the only problem was there was one night when I was on and he'd done, he'd done this to me about five or six times. You know, he'd been Henry Cooper or he'd been the jockey, John Frankham or whatever. And there was one night and, and the phone rang and it was about 10.15 and this guy said, um, Oh, is that the BBC Sports Room? And I said, um, yes, yes, yeah, sort of waiting for, you know, Brackley. Uh, he said, well, it's, hello, he said, it's Colin Cowdery here. Do you remember Colin Cowdery? Yeah, the cricket. The, the, the England cricketer, England cricket captain, you know. Yeah. So Colin Cowdery said, um, I, I missed the sports desk. He said, um, did you by any chance have the result of the 9.15 at Windsor? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, um, oh, come on, Brackis, is that the best you can do? <laughs> Colin Cowdery, you know, leave it out, mate, you know. You know, come on. Yeah, do you think I was born yesterday? Pull the other one. And of course, it was Colin Cowdery. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
but well, you mentioned some of the names you mentioned there. It's like it's a golden age of broadcasting that time, but it's also a golden age in terms of like your relationships with famous sportsmen because it seemed like there was no problems with access then. It seemed was was that the case? We didn't have any problems with access at all. No, uh, in it was a golden age because this was pre um, Sky TV, and um, I think at the time because a lot of the football managers like me, had grown up in the 50s, had grown up during the war years and everything else. Radio had been in their households. And they all cherished radio. They all knew the the, the value of radio. They all listened. They, all the dressing rooms would have sports report on, you know, at the grounds on a on a Saturday. So we didn't have any... I mean, that was, a, you know, obviously, I think the biggest change in my life has been... In, in, in football has been the advent of television in a, in a major way and all the things that have come along. And some of them have been good, some of them have been not so good. But I think one of the fall guys from that was radio. I think I think that radio became more marginalised. And, you know, whereas in in the old days, after a game, you'd get, uh, you would have had someone like Jose Mourinho to yourself for a radio interview. Now you're sort of one of 16 microphones, you know. So we had we had wonderful access in those days. But, um, you know, that's progress, I suppose. I mean, there's so many iconic 90s football icons you met and one we wanted to ask about was Bobby Robson obviously the, the first England manager of the 90s I think you met him when, when he was at Ipswich what kind of entourage did he have with him when you met? was it an Ali sized <laughs> oh, I loved him to bits I really did I mean he's one of the most passionate um, football people that I, I ever ever met I mean and, and just full of idiosyncrasies as well you know um, the, the first time I met him actually was when he was at Ipswich he was the Ipswich manager and he got the England job and um, I, I went. To, it was August time. I went over to to interview him at Portman Road about taking over from Ron Greenwood as the England manager. And um, we never met before. And I went into his little office there, and he was start, starting to tidy up and get things ready to go to Lancaster Gate. And he did the usual sort of professional interview and everything else, said all the right things. And then he said to me at the end of the interview, he said, um, "Are you you're going back to London now?" And I said, "Actually, no. I'm going up to see my mum and dad in Derby." He said, "Ah, right. Well, I tell you tell you the way to go." He said, what you need to do is to go to get to Derby. He said, he said, uh, you go when you come out of the ground, turn left. And then when you get to the first round of it, he said, no, I said, no, I tell you what, he said, I'll draw you a map. So, so, so he got a piece of paper and he, he, and he, and he started drawing this map. He said, so, so they are okay. So when you get to that ra- ra- roundabout there, you take the third exit, not the second. So I said, thank you, Bobby, very much indeed. I think I'll, I'll be fine now. Yeah. So we said goodbye. I went to the, went down to the car park at Portman Road. And I was just getting into my little car and I was sort of manoeuvring my way out of the car park. And suddenly I heard this tapping on the window, you know, and there he was, you know, the New England manager. And I wound my window down and he said, so don't forget, son, third exit, not the second when you get to the <laughs> And I mean, I, I was thinking to myself, well, if, if that's the attention to detail that he gives us football. But, you know, he was... Um, he, oh, he was. I always remember um, we were we were somewhere. I can't somewhere very hot, and all the press entourage, typical, you know, mad dogs, Englishmen, go out in the midday sun, and we were all lying by a pool, and it was sort of ninety degrees in the shade. And he came and found us all, you know. And he said, he said, uh, he said, now lads, he said, be very careful. He said, he said, those ultra ray violets are very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> didn't you? You drunk with him on the night of Euro eighty eight as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean. Um, Yes, he, he, he I, I did that tournament in, in Germany and uh, England just tanked there. They were awful. They'd lost to Ireland. Um, they were massacred by, by the Dutch. And then in the third game, when they were playing for pride, they just hoisted the white flag really against the Russians. 
And we actually had been watching the other game that day, although we, we didn't, we, the intention was for us to do England, because England was a dead rubber. We were sent off to watch the Republic of Ireland game against Holland because the Irish had a chance of qualifying. And we, we got back to the hotel quite late. I think it was in Frankfurt. And um, I was with Ron Greenwood, who uh, had been Bobby's predecessor, obviously. And only because I was with Ron Greenwood, I was invited into sort of the inner circle. And it was just Ron Greenwood, Don Howe, Bobby Robson, myself and Brian Butler. Oh, wow. And... Um, and while we were talking, and he was absolutely distraught, he just took defeat so badly and everything else. But while we were while we were talking, uh, the, the players were kind of letting their hair down in a, an adjoining room, you know, having a, having quite a good time, and you could hear them sort of cheering. And he just used to, you know, Bobby turned to Don quite a few times and said, "Listen to that, Don." He said, "Listen to that." He said, "They they don't lose like we used to do. They don't know how to, you know, it doesn't hurt them as much now as, as it did when we were players, you know." And oh. that was how he that was how he felt. And um, oh, that's yeah, kind of, it's it's kind of. I've I've never heard anyone kind of say anything other than a positive thing about Bobby Robson. No, in fact, I went to the memorial service at Durham Cathedral when there was just such an outpouring of love and affection for him, including a, a wonderful eulogy from Sir Alex Ferguson. I mean, there's just some so many legendary stories of uh, Bobby. I mean, uh, there's that great story that Stuart Pearce tells about how Bobby, I think it was Italian 90, was he, I think mobile phones had just come out, you know, and he was grappling with one. Somebody had given him one from the FA, you know, and he had no idea how to work it. And um, and Pearce, he sort of saw him and said, what's, what's, what's the matter? you got a problem? He said, oh, he says, the bloody thing's not working. He said, well, I'll tell you what to do, Stuart. He said, why don't you ring your number and then you'll see if it's working or not. And, of course, <laughs> he rang his own number and he <laughs> <laughs> and it was and it was engaged um, <laughs> but um but that the italian 90 experience was i mean that ended with probably the best performance i saw from england side mm. in that semi-final against against germany and and it set a trend for me i mean why i call the book after extra time at penalties because all the way through the 90s that's how it always seemed to end you know and i was i seemed to be the the go-to man to describe the missed penalty because I did them all, you know, uh, even non-England penalties like Baggio in 94. Oh. But, um, you know, the, the, the 94 world, uh, the, the Italian 90 with Bobby Robson, his swan song, and, and, uh, and some of the tales from that, that tournament. I mean, Terry Butcher who and Chris Waddle, who became great mates because they were summarizers for us, and they used to have us in hysterics, you know. Can you imagine going out for a meal with those two, you know, and some of the stories they told about Gascoigne and, and Bobby Robson and everything else. And, you know, Terry was was had been Bobby's captain at Ipswich and um, he became the captain then when Brian Robson went home in Italia 90. And there was one evening when Bobby said to, to Terry as the captain, look, we've got a really important dinner tonight in the hotel. We've got these VIPs coming around from Cagliari, you know, the mayor and everybody else and the FA delegation will be here. Look, he said, I tell you, if you just – Turn up on time, look smart, don't drink any alcohol, you know, and then I'll let you, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you something back tomorrow, you know, I'll let you, I'll let you go out for the evening or something like that. So, you know, th- what happened was Terry led the team in and they were all sitting there, you know, suited and booted, you know, collar and tie and everything else and um, looking the part and, and, Bobby was sort of sitting next to Don Ham saying, ah, look at that, Don. I knew they wouldn't let me down. You know, when I needed them, they're there. You know, the, the boys, they've not let the side down and everything else. And, um, and then right at the end of the evening, um, Terry sent a message over to Bobby to say, um, is it okay if we go now, boss? You know, we, we, we want to just get our heads down for the night, you know. And Bobby said, yeah, absolutely fine. Thumbs up. Thanks very much, boys. And Terry got up, walked out, and he hadn't got any trousers on. <laughs> <laughs> He got a, he's got he's got his England blazer and tie on and and his and and Y fronts and that was it and walked out with it and then 
mooned everybody and, said, <laughs> and then waved his way out of the room. And that was the kind of spirit of Italian 90. Those are the yeah. sort of things that were, you know, and that's probably why the squad bonded so well on the field, you know. Did you, you're, when, because you're chief football correspondent for Five Live for the BBC and you're in the hotels for these tournaments. What's that like? Are you are you seeing Wayne Rooney at breakfast? How much are you seeing of the team, and how much do you feel central to it? Well, it it it, um, it was a double edged sword in some respects. I had quite a few tournaments where I was actually with 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 the squad. I mean, in Japan. Uh, which was a bit of a nightmare, though, because the England team had to share the hotel with loads of tourists as well. So it was, anyway, it was crazy. But no, I was with them in Japan. I was with them in Portugal, with them in Germany as well. And the problem is that uh, you do see things, but be, you kind of, it's almost like you've signed the official secrets act, you know, you, mm. you, and, and which is difficult for a journalist. And we were, we were really tested, you know, on the night when Rooney well, he'd been doubtful for World Cup 2006, and of course, w- when he came back, and we were there to witness it all, and we had to report it. You know, um, so so, did so, you so see him say the words, "The big man's back in town." Yeah, that was that I did, and, 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 and I was just inches away from him. I mean, to be to be in his defence, those words were almost put into his mouth by the kit man who was waiting for him on reception. The kit man said to him when he got back, "The big man is back," and then Rooney responded with, "The big man is back in town," and of course, that was our story, you know, for the morning. Yeah. Um, so, so you felt you felt slightly, but then um, the, the the sort of spin off from all of that was that you, if you were Terry Butcher in the hotel, you know he could he could just stop and talk to people like John Terry and 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 Sol Campbell or whatever, you know. So I always remember during two thousand and two, during the World Cup in Japan, when there was all this hoo ha about whether Beckham was going to be fit or not. I remember the old the good old. Doc, uh, God rest his soul, John Crane, you know, uh, joining us for coffees you know, in the hotel and, and giving us chapter and verse, really, you know, on the Beckham injury. Uh, which oh, wow. should, uh, and you haven't yeah, well, done it yourself when you're going on Five Live then? Well, we, we mix and match, really. Um, we used to have to run a bit of it past the, the FA media people. But, um, yeah, I, it, it was it was it was one of those where you on, on the one hand, it was a little bit stir crazy because England used to pick these remote places to stay. And I would have much rather been with the lads in town, you know, having a good time. But and that was part of the problem I always felt with England, that they kind of. You know, they 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 put themselves in these ivory towers when they got mm. to tournaments, and and um, almost created this anxiety around themselves. You know, and in fact, I always remember, I think when they played the the great game in um, Munich against Germany when they won five one. I think I always remember all the newspaper stories saying, "Oh, the England team are next door to a beer keller in the middle of Munich. They're not going to sleep." You know, um, but but they were back in an air, in an air of normality, I suppose, that mm. night, and 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 then just got on with it, and 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 produce one of the great performances so i just felt england sometimes uh, uh, the, cl- the classic one of course was south africa where they they were completely institutionalized in this place that fabio capello had chosen up you know in R- rustenburg um and that really you know i'm not surprised that they were just the, the, the displays were just so dreadful because that was the whole atmosphere there um there's one thing just before we get properly into the 90s there's one thing i wanted to ask you about in the 80s which is that in 1984 you were commentated on newcastle versus sheffield wednesday st james's park when the announcer read your car number plate out and said, can the owner of this vehicle please get in touch? What, what, is that true? And what did you do? Well, it was only my second ever commentary. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it was um, August Bank Holiday Monday. I, I'd done my first game on the Saturday, which was Manchester United and Watford, and then had to travel up to Newcastle to do this Newcastle-Sheffield Wednesday game. And I, yeah, I was nervous as a kitten, you know, really was. And um, so I'm in my seat at St. James's Park, and it's about, I'm starting the game. And I mean, to grapple with the team news and everything else. And 
Uh, and actually, Newcastle and Sheffield Wednesday weren't the easiest sides to commentate on because they had these awful striped shirts and you couldn't see the numbers. But I remember sitting in my seat and then hearing this public address about quarter of three, would the owner of car, I can't remember, remember what my registration number is now, you know, please come to reception. And I went down. And what had happened was that I'd fill my car up with petrol just before I got to the ground. And in those days, I was actually incredibly allowed to park in an area where which is now reserved really for the chairman, I think, and the, you know Mike Ashley and people like that. It was on a very steep incline as you walk into St. James's Park on the left-hand side. My car was there. And because it was so full, it was leaking petrol all over the forecourt, you know. Uh, and I, so this is 10 minutes, 10 minutes before the game, so I'm grappling around, you know, look, uh, tr- trying to tidy up and then went back to my seat, absolutely reeking, stinking of petrol, you know. And so that was my second, uh, second ever commentary. And yeah, not surprisingly, made a pig's ear of the description of some of the action. <laughs> well, there's one other aspect of the 80s I just want to ask you about, which is obviously, you know, hooliganism really dominated that decade. And I guess I always thought that is probably the tricky, one of the trickiest things to kind of commentate on. And I imagine it's a problem you have to deal with on more than one occasion. Uh, yes, yes. Um, it, was the, it was the blight of our lives, really, um, th- th- through, through that period. And, and I was... Um, I was in the Heysel Stadium as well, um, the night of the European Cup final, which was at the end of my first full season. And um, it should have been a glorious footballing occasion, Liverpool-Juventus, because they were the best two teams in Europe at the time without without question. But everything about it was wrong. I mean, they should never have been playing in the stadium. It, it was a you know decrepit old stadium, which wasn't fit for purpose and everything else. But you have to remember that uh, this was almost like this has been coming for some for some time. There have been all sorts of outbreaks all over Europe. Uh, and on that particular night, that was really the awful sort of finality of it all. Um, so yeah, I mean that that was that was a dreadful experience because I went you know along to describe a football match and I was having to look at dead bodies outside the stadium. And mm. you know the, the thing about that night was there were only three of us there for BBC Radio. I mean nowadays there'd be hard, there'd be you know at least a dozen people there, but there was only me and a commentator and a summarizer, Peter Jones and Emlyn Hughes. So there was no one no one spare. So I had to go outside and. Um, you know, look at these dead bodies and uh, and then commentate on the game. It was just, it was just oh, yeah, soul soul destroying, really. But because um, you, you said you in the book, you talk about how for a documentary that then didn't happen, you listened back to that night, the recording mm. of that night. What was that like to listen back to? Did what you'd said feel familiar, or did it feel like did it place you back there? What was that like? Yes, yeah, so I, I listened back to it only because I was I was doing the book and I, I just wanted to try and remind myself. I mean, you couldn't take yourself back to that though. That was just one of those awful, awful experiences. And uh, what what I remembered most of all, though, listening back to it, and and it, I, it, I, I listened to the sound of the of the commentary, and then I remembered what had happened when Peter Jones, the commentator, uh, who had just given a tour de force performance, you know, just anchoring everything from the stadium, the moment came for him to cue to me to start the European Cup final. Um, you know, he, he he said something along the lines of, you know, well, now let's let's just try. Let's just try and describe the 1985 European Cup final between Liverpool and Juventus. And alongside me, uh, my colleague, who's been doing very different things for the last hour and a half, two hours, Mike Ingham. And there's a silence um, for about 10, 15 seconds. And that's not because... I don't know what to say, but because Peter's grabbed hold of my arm and he's squeezing it tight just to just to give me some, some, some sort of strength, if you like, you know, just squeezing my arm. Um, and, and that's what I probably remember most of all about. Well, I don't remember anything at all about about the game. I mean, um, I, I do remember 
going back to stadium the next day. I do remember then going back to Liverpool with the team and Kenny Dalglish being unveiled as the manager. And then I do remember getting on an aeroplane to go to Mexico to see England on a summer tour in 85. And of course, the first people that um, they were playing against were the Italians, which was just, oh my God. I mean, I'd like to think, I'd like to think that wouldn't happen nowadays. If that, yeah. I'd like to think that game would have been called off. It wouldn't go ahead, would it? it but did it feel like it, that was up for question. Were you surprised it was going ahead at the time? No, it, it didn't really seem to be up for debate. But I mean, interestingly, it was in the Azteca Stadium, which I think holds, I don't know how many, 150,000, something like that. And there were about 10,000 people there. Even the Mexicans who love their football, you know, weren't going to be... Um, that weren't going to be taken in by by something as sort of insignificant as that, really. And yeah. um, it just the whole time was it, it. It always seemed to me as well that slightly inconsistent that the the direct result of that were that the clubs were banned from Europe, um, which well, I understand, but it meant that clubs like Norwich City, for example, you know, who'd had a pretty good record in terms of you know um, supporters, that they were banned from Europe, and yet the the biggest problem at the time was was the England national football team. I mean, I witnessed some terrible scenes all over you. And yet the England team w- was still allowed to, to, to carry on playing. And in fact, you know, when we got to, to, to Germany then in 88 and in Italy in 1990, it was absolute carnage. So couldn't really understand the, the inconsistency there between banning the clubs but not banning the national sign. Um, so you're our first radio commentator guest properly. So we wanted to ask you a few questions about being a radio commentator. The first one is, what's the key to it? What, what is the secret that you have to, to be a good radio commentator? Well, uh, I can only tell you how it, how it worked for me. I'm not going to set this up as being, this is the definitive guide to radio <laughs> commentary. But, um, and I, I know what works for me as a listener as well. I think that um, I've, I've mentioned Peter a few times, Peter Jones, because he was the master radio commentator. It's very simple, really. I think you've got to just try and in, in, in terms of setting the scene and everything else, make the listener feel uh, they're sitting alongside you in, in the stadium. I heard Clive Tilsley on one of your podcasts mm. and he was talking about the he was aware of the fact that, you know, when he gets to a World Cup, millions of people are watching. Well, with radio, it, it doesn't work like that. You should only ever really be be talking to one person. Um, and that's the way I always try to do it. And, and, and then I suppose the two most important things in a radio commentary are um, this might sound incredibly stupid, but give the score. Keep giving the score <laughs> because you know if you no, love it. Yeah, well, you know if you're out and about on a Saturday afternoon and you're yeah. just uh, ducking, ducking and diving, and you put the radio on for a few minutes, you want to know what the score is um, at reg- as regularly as you possibly can. And then the other thing is you have to. The other thing that's important is geography because you have to be able to. If the, if the listener doesn't know where the ball is, they can't follow the game. And so you, you know, you have to be able to. They have to understand if if, if it's Manchester United and Liverpool, if Manchester United are playing from left to right. Then if the ball is with David Beckham, you have to say with David Beckham near side the right. I mean, it sounds it's an obvious thing to do, but yeah, and then, unless you actually know the geography of the pitch and the way the teams are playing, then it, then they can't follow it. But, you know, I had my sort of road to Damascus moment um, when my dad took me to a cup final um, in, I was only 13, the 1964 final between West Ham and Preston. And we stood at the Preston end at, at Wembley, the old, the old Wembley, and um, we were with the Preston fans. And uh, it was one of the happiest days of my life. And 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 I, I just remember when the game started, there were a couple of Preston fans standing next to me. And um, one of the guys was doing doing a little commentary. And he was, he was saying, oh, you know, Dawson's got the ball now and he's going to, he's looking for Holden over on the left and, and now Kendall. And I'm thinking, well, well, I don't really understand why he's doing that. And then I realized his mate 
couldn't see. And he was just looking up at the sky and he had his Preston scarf on and his rosette and everything else. He had a great big beaming smile on his face. And his friend, brother, whatever he, you know, alongside him had gone along to, you know, hold his hand, steer him in and to describe the game to him. And I thought, well, that's the power of communication. That's the power of radio. And I've never forgot that, you know, and that was something that was always in the back in my mind when I, whenever I was in a stadium. And one of, when you finished at Five Live, one of the letters you got was from David Blunkett, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, that meant wow. a, meant an awful lot to me because um, he he loves his football. I think he's a Sheffield Wednesday fan, and uh, he'd obviously listened to us over the years. And uh, that meant that meant an awful lot to me because, in fact, if, in many ways, they're the kind of definitive audience, really, because they're relying on you for everything. And so, if you can satisfy their requirements, then that, that that's really something. In the kind of commentary circles, what is seen as the higher form of art? Is it radio commentary or TV? What do people say? Oh, I mean, um, all. I mean, if I had a pound for every time, you know, somebody said to me, you know, are you going to go to television, or you know, why? Are you? I mean, television was seen as a promotion. Um, it really oh, was, right. and, and even more so now, because what I said earlier about radio being marginalised. I mean, but it's a very different art form, you know. Well, it should be anyway. I mean, because you you have to create the pictures on radio, on the tele on the television. They're there for people to see, and you should only really adorn those pictures. I think, and and, and in the way that I mean, I always thought the best television commentator I ever not not in football actually, but I always thought Richie Benno on the cricket was yeah, wonderful was because every time every, every time he spoke, he added something to to to, to to what you were watching you know so 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 yeah television is seen as as what well, vastly vastly superior um it's a very different technique um but i look i couldn't have had the career that i had in television i was never offered any television work anyway i was I, I, I think i'm probably the only if you go through the last 20 years of people who've done radio commentary for some reason i i didn't do but i it, they couldn't have given me you know being the, the radio correspondent i i got to see virtually you know all the games that mattered and, and that sort of job doesn't exist in television so i wouldn't have changed wouldn't have changed a minute you know you've gone to everything do you know what i mean over 25 years you were the person who was at everything didn't they say that you blinked too much for tv yeah somebody said that to me once because in the in the early days of well before i became a commentator i was presenting sport on two and i suppose um having because i didn't do any commentary in local radio or anything uh, i was i was a presenter there so i suppose i thought well in the, in the grand scheme of things here if um fairy godmother's going to come down and tap me on the shoulder and say you know grant me one wish i would want to be maybe presenting the grandstand program on television I think I might have said that over a beer to somebody, you know, one of our editors at Radio Sport. And he just turned around to me and said, uh, he said, you'll never work in TV. I said, why is that? He said, because you blink. So as you, can, yeah, as you can imagine, I didn't get much of a phobia about that. Prizing <laughs> my eyes open for the... <laughs> so not much of a complex there. <laughs> we've had... We've had um, so we had Clive Tildesley on as obviously a TV commentator. I wanted to ask you, it seems like a lot of commentators have very regimented pre-match kind of regimes and routines. Like Motson, I've heard, has similar. Do you have one of those as well? Well, I mean, in terms of um, uh, what, regime, in terms of travelling, yes, I always used to. I used, used to set off ridiculously early because I had this phobia about getting stuck on the M6 or something. So I'd get there, you know, hours before the game and everything. <laughs> um, in fact, I used to have this ritual so that. If I was and a lot of, lot of so many of my games were in Liverpool and Manchester, I always used to break my journey at the service station uh, near Coventry, and, and in fact they got to know me there and had my order waiting for me when I walked in, you know, <laughs> had my had my egg sandwich and, and cappuccino, you know, ready to go. Um, but no, but that, it, yeah, match day ritual, yes, I, I, I had that, I suppose. But in terms of preparing for games, um, 
didn't do didn't do a lot. Sometimes used to go and watch if it was a team a, a, a foreign opposition, and I didn't know them. I'd go and maybe try and watch training and and um, what I what I used to do there for, for, used to work for me in a sense in that I used to try and think of. If he saw, saw, saw somebody running around, I'd think, well, who does he remind me of? You know, for, you know, if, if, you know, if I saw Liam or Messi running around, I'd think, oh, Josh Whittingham, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, you wouldn't be wrong. No, <laughs> no I, but I'd think of somebody um, maybe from the music business or something and then, and then you know, put that name like the, I've done a bit in the book where I've sort of separated at birthing where I've, so for example, I think Andrea Schurler, who played for Chelsea, looks a bit like Hugh Dennis and stuff like that. You know, I'd put, put them down. In your head, you've got Hugh Dennis so that when you see him, you're going, Schurler, yeah. Hugh Dennis. Well, then I just had to remember what Hugh Dennis looked like, but, <laughs> but, but in, in terms of, in terms of um, having prepared lines and stuff, no, I used to work on the basis of if it's in my head, it'll come out. If it's not, um, somebody asked me about that once when I was at a tournament, they, you know, about how much work do you do? How much preparation do you do? And I think one of the, I, I didn't tell this story, but one, I have written the story, but I always remember, um, before a cup final, I won't say when it was because that will narrow it down a bit, but I remember I was commentating on the cup final, um, and it was the football of the year dinner on the Thursday night. And I was sitting next to a, a well-known player. Um, and I was thinking, oh, I might get a line here for the cup final because the captain of one of the teams on Saturday, he used to play with this guy who's sitting next to me. So I said, so I said um, I'm doing the cup final Saturday. Is there anything you can tell me about? Um, blah, you know, I, won't, I can't say the name, you know. Anything you can tell me about him that I could sort of slip into the commentary, particularly if he's climbing up the steps to get the cup at the end. And he looked at me and he said, oh, he said, I'll tell you one thing. He said, um, I know someone who shagged his missus. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get it in the commentary? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and just before he receives the cup from Her Majesty the Queen, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> It would be a great way. It would be a great way to go out, wouldn't it? If you'd won the lottery or something, you know, you thought I'm going to make a grandstand exit here from BBC. It wasn't dissimilar from what Patrice Evra did a few weeks ago. I don't know if you saw that. That I was. Know, a... I know, I know. Um, with someone yeah. who did make the move from radio TV, who's kind of, for me, the defining broadcaster. Really, when I was growing up, is Des Lynham, who you say is in the book is one of your favourites. What was he like to work with, and what? Why was he so? What, I, I'm just so in love with Des Lynham, I don't even know how to phrase the question. Just talk to me about how great Des Lynham is, is what I, all I'm really thinking. Well, first and foremost, um, Des worked in local radio. So that, that was the way we all came through in those days. I'm not sure if it still happens now, but we all had that kind of foundation in local radio. Uh, so he'd been, he'd been down in Brighton and uh, he just was totally natural. The thing about Des was that what you saw on TV, what you heard on radio... In everyday conversation, if you met him, you wouldn't be disappointed. That is the way. It was no pretend. You know, that was how he was. It was just very, very gifted broadcaster. Um, and um, he was just a great loss to radio. I would have loved. I mean, in fact, I, I always used to think Des would have would it would have been great if he could have been could have come back eventually and become head of radio sport. And I mean, he'd have made a wonderful radio sport uh, radio sport head. Um, but great voice, great team player as well. A, a wonderful team player. I always remember um, a story I heard about him um, being sent to cover a world title fight in Las Vegas in um, the seventies or eighties, and um, you know, long flight to Las Vegas. And in those days, they looked after their name people and they arranged for Des to fly to Las Vegas in business class, I remember. 
Um, and then he found out that his producer, who was going with him, wasn't. You know, was going, she was going to be sitting at the end, at the other end of the plane, while he was sort of luxuriating in business class. And he just went, knocked on the door of the management, and said, "Look, if you want me to do this fight." then my producer's going to fly with me. And th so that was how he was. Do you know what I mean? He was caring yeah. in, that in that respect. He was a team player, saw the bigger picture. Those, those kind of openings that Lionel would do and the kind of closing lines, did he have that charm and smoothness in person day to day then? That was how he was, yes, yes. Look, that's the way it has to be as well, isn't it? You can't be one person on the radio or television and then be a totally different person. You know, you must know that. And you can't. It's what you see is what you get. And um, he, he, he was just such an inspiration, I think, to so many generations of, 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 of sports presenters and the way that Peter Jones was in commentary, you know. Um, Desmond Lyon really, really, you know, he was the pioneer. He was Everyone wanted to be Desmond Lyon. And, of course, the thing is about him was that not only did he pre present the sports programs before he went to television, they also had him presenting the Today program, you know, for, for instance. I mean, that just shows you what an accomplished all-round presenter he was. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and again, I said earlier, you know, I'm a great voice man. I, I, I just listened to his voice for till the cows come home, really. Wonderful, wonderful. Moving on to kind of commentating at matches, I wondered, did you have a favourite ground? Is there somewhere that treated you much better than others, other places? And also on that, is there a, the place you really dreaded going to because of the facilities were awful? Oh, goodness. Well, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> yeah. I think one of the grounds that meant the most to me, well, look, apart from obviously I, I did a commentary at Home Park, you know, Plymouth, which is where it all started for me. I did a commentary at the baseball ground, which was the next most important place after Home Park in terms of giving me my, my, my football, football education. So going there was very special. But I, I'd never forget going being taken to Old Trafford when I was eight years of age, you know, by my uncles at Christmas to see Manchester United post uh, Munich air crash play. And so to do my first commentary there uh, in 1984 at Old Trafford, that, that was always a very special place. But then it was lovely. It was always beautiful going to Anfield and sitting on the, the, the Gant. We, we were very lucky to have some great positions, such as the one at Anfield. But we also, equally, we also had some dreadful positions too, um, behind pillars and posts and what have you. Uh, the, 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 maybe the grounds that I um, always had um, the biggest problem with in advance was going to Spain for the European games because I knew for some reason, I don't know why, but I just knew that we weren't going to be looked after and that we'd always be sitting over the corner flag watching. You know, I, I so, saw so many great matches in the Nou Camp Stadium in Barcelona and yet um, couldn't really do them justice because we were almost behind one of the goals. And, and that's hopeless for commentary, you know. So so they, they would have been the worst positions. And... But the worst positions of all are the ones where you've got uh, a pillar in the way or a post, and like for example at Goodison Park, and it was incredible how many times when I was commentating over the years that the only goal of the game would be scored behind that pillar, and you couldn't see who it was, you know. And of course, you couldn't see who it was until they ran away to celebrate, and then nine times out of ten they take the shirt off, so you've got no idea who it is, you know. Um, <laughs> is that that's why yeah. they, they should have brought in the bookings because it's made it more difficult for the commentators when they're taking the shirts <laughs> yes. off. Yeah, I mean, I have to say also, I I preferred going to the old Wembley, the new Wembley as well. Um, because we were lucky at the Old Wembley, we had a commentary position which used to be used by the um, the Greyhound people when they had Greyhound racing there, right up in the gods, looking down over the halfway line. That was fantastic. But then when we moved to the, the new Wembley, it became very corporate and uh, uh, we were behind glass and uh, it seemed completely detached from the game. So um, I'm probably one of the few people around in the country that still thinks the Old Wembley was better than the new one. 
in the book you say you went to Chesterfield and you had to walk did you have to walk through a house to get to the <laughs> Yeah. We we play it was a League Cup game between uh, Chesterfield and Liverpool. It's the only time I've been there. And um I always remember we we dared we did we to get because we, we were up we had to climb a ladder to get up the commentary position. <laughs> And, it, and this ladder was behind the stand, and the only way we could get to it was to go through somebody's house. And, go, and, the, and of course, it was a big deal for them. They were all waiting for us with mugs of tea and everything. They were lovely people, you know. So, uh, and then we had to do the same thing afterwards, go back again through the house, you know. And no, uh, that, that's, that's um, yeah, that, that's how it was, yeah. It wouldn't have happened to John Watson, I don't think, on television. <laughs> You've also worked on some kind of unlikely events, should we say. So you you introduced the Pussycat Dolls at Live Earth. Is Do you that- know what? No, that is a complete and utter. That is the downside. I don't. That's Wikipedia, isn't it? And they really? Is yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm guilty of that. I've got to ask you about that. No, no. It seems to me that you can do. You can edit that, can't you? The somebody thought that was a good wheeze to say that <laughs> uh, Peter Alan Brackley. Green and I. Interviewed the pussy, uh, introduced them on stage at Live Earth or something. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, can you imagine that? Can you? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, because your wife was involved in these, because uh, your wife's like a producer of these big events, yeah. I thought. She's just got Mike Hingham in to, to introduce the Pussycat Dolls. <laughs> Do you think someone's edited that Wikipedia like who was there that day from a distance and thought it was you introducing the Pussycat Dolls? Look, look, I mean, why spoil a good story with the facts? It was a great <laughs> night. We had a, me, me, and the, me and the Pussycat Dolls, wow. <laughs> no, it never happened. No, uh, no, 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 sorry, 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 boys. Um, no, that's fine. That's fine. It's good to, it's good to finally put that rumour to bed, isn't it? But there's one one other big, tele, possibly one of the biggest events of the 90s was, of course, Princess Diana's uh, funeral, which you commentated on. Like, how does that happen? Well, I think when it came to that, they wanted a range of uh, sort of news and current affairs people, but they also wanted people that could uh, that were used to commentating. Um, and they asked if I'd, I'd funnily, funnily enough, I had actually gone to, in my very early days in London, because I'd done an early shift at the BBC. I'd actually gone to stand on the mall when uh, Charles and Diana got married, you know, because I thought it was just one of those days and I was there. So it just felt very strange to be back in almost exactly the same place. My commentary place was almost exactly the same spot on the mall for that. And um, I look back on that with um, very mixed feelings, really. Uh, we, we, we were told we had a meeting with the, the head of Radio 4 a couple of days before the funeral who told us there must be no sentimentality. He said, we don't want any of you, you know, getting emotionally caught up in this. But I don't know if you can remember, but, you know, I, I, it's it's almost impossible now to think back to how it was in that week in the country. And I remember taking my young son, my youngest son, down to London just so that he could sort of soak up some of, just remember something from it, you know, and took him down to see all the flowers down outside Buckingham Palace. And so, yeah, I mean, we were all caught up in it. And um, I have regrets about the commentary I did because I sort of, I don't know, I suppose trying to take a leaf out of Peter Jones's book because Peter would have commentated that if he'd still been alive. And I remember using a sort of fairly crass line about, to quote another Diana, you know, reach out and touch somebody's hand, make the world a better place if you can, because I thought at the time it was appropriate. But I remember listening back to it and thought, well, that's that's actually quite naff. I wish I hadn't done that. I remember, though, because nobody had mentioned it, I remember when the um, the funeral cortege passed my, my point, I remember focusing on the... Um, on the on the the two boys, the, t- the two princes, and the wreath uh, with the card on top of the wreath that just said "Mummy," and I thought, well, that to me that just says it all. Really, these two young boys, you know, the, in front of the whole world of tele- audience on television, and yet at the end of it all, really, they've just lost their mum. And it's as simple simple as that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And then another thing is that you're a big record collector. I wonder mm-hmm. if your house was on fire, which one record <laughs> of yours would you run in and oh, say? Oh, boy. Wow. That's a very good question, that is. Um, what one record would I save? Oh, well, probably the first record I was ever given, I suppose, because my dad uh, got one of these sort of, you know, very primitive old record players for Christmas for us and decided to start our record collection off with, you probably won't even know what I'm talking about here, but probably one of the worst records ever made called Mr. Custer by Charlie Drake, who was a comedian at the time. So (laughs) I've never heard, I've heard of Charlie Drake. But I've never heard the song Mr. Custom. I, but I will tell you now, it's the first thing I'm putting into Spotify when this interview ends. <laughs> no, but that, that's, that would be one of them. Uh, well, too many to choose from, but that would be one. Probably Booker T and the MGs, Green Onions, because that's, oh, the, record yeah. that reminds, that's the record that reminds me of, um, of growing up, adolescence, misspent youth, and, you know, yeah, happy times. So that reminds me that that organ sound of Booker T and the MGs to me sums up the 60s. And, uh, yeah, that would be the record I'd probably take to my desert island. And I think we can't let this opportunity pass, given that now Michael Foote has left us. You've got two of Plymouth Argyle's most famous fans <laughs> on this podcast right now. Um, so, Mike, like, did you keep that quite secret throughout your career? No, not really. I mean, there's not, um, I owe Plymouth Argyle everything because um, I, it was the first game I, I was ever taken to. And I'm sure you can remember the first games, the game that you went to. It just stays with you forever. It was just one of those magical days. And um, looking at it through child's eyes, and there was just, it seemed to me in those days, no television. There was just so much more mystique about the whole thing. There's nothing quite like, you know, Argyle in those days, Josh had 25,000 in the ground. There was nothing like the sound of that, of that yeah. crowd. And they were all home fans because there were no motorways and so no away fans or anything like that. So um, that, that, was my, that was my first love. But the problem was... Um, I moved to to Derby then with the family, and it, again because of motorways, you can't really carry on supporting Argyle when you live in Derby. It was just so difficult, and um, it tugged at my heartstrings. But then I kind of got into watching Derby and saw them rise through the sixties. But there have been moments where my loyalty has been tested, like when Derby played Plymouth in the FA Cup quarter final in you know, nineteen eighty four. Uh, but what's been great is that since we moved back down to the southwest. Um, and because I never had a father-son relationship myself, taking my boy to the game because of my, my commitments, I've been able to take my youngest boy to uh, to home park and missing it terribly, uh, really getting withdrawal symptoms. We're both season ticket holders and um, can't wait to go back and see a game there again. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does feel like it's a kind of amazingly circular journey. Did you did you ever worry that Plymouth would get into the Premier League and you'd be forced into a situation where you were commentating on them and uh, having to uh, bite your tongue? No, no, that that would be one of my. If I could have it, my time all over again. I suppose one thing I'd like to change would be uh, to to have commentated on Plymouth Argyle in, in in the Premier League. That would have been wonderful. But and and you know they still kind of punching below their weight for for, for a team yeah. with their fan base. They're the biggest city in the country. Who've never been in the in the top division. But I tell you what happens though when you're commentating on a a team that you really care about. And I know that. I mean, I've talked to other commentators about this. Sometimes you almost go the other way. Because people are aware of your, um, you know, your loyalty to a club. And sometimes you almost kind of, in, in a determination to show that you're not being one-sided or biased, you go too far the other way. Um, so maybe that's what I would have done if I'd, um, if, if I'd had that privilege. Um, our last question. I mean, you had such a storied career in broadcasting. And if we gave you the option to go back to the 1st of January 1990 and do it all over again, would you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I... Um would love to revisit that 
very fortunate life that I had, very fortunate career that I had. Um, you know, that would mean I'd be able to meet up again with old friends, many of whom have, have passed away, sadly. So that would be great to go back and see them again. I, If I had my time again, I'd like to think that radio could have lasted maybe a little bit longer in terms of being a priority for football clubs. That would have been nice, but then, um, you know, that wasn't to be. And I would have probably tried to drink a bit less white wine. Um, <laughs> It's always good to it's always good to have that as your regret. I think that's a good. <laughs> yeah, I mean the other thing is I think just going you know I think probably uh, thinking about this um it's just the main role was to be the England correspondent. I think um with England I probably what I'd do second time around I'd like to think could happen would be when we got to the tournaments to spare a little bit of the heartache cut out the middleman and go straight to the penalty shootouts you know um, <laughs> and then I think that would. <laughs> That would have spared an awful lot of grief and angst, you know, expecting yeah. when you went out there. But at the same time, if, if that happened, then uh, I would have had to have thought of another title for my book. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Mike. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much, you. Mike Ingham. That was Mike Ingham. Absolutely lovely man. Yeah, loved him. It's, uh, there's something about commentators. They're, they're so wise, aren't they? There's a real silkiness to his voice and a considered prose, and um, I loved it. That is Mike Ingham, and his book, After Extra Time, is available. You know, all good book retailers. Don't go for the main one, guys. Come on, let's try and let's try and stop that guy in his tracks. Not Mike Ingham. Let's be very clear on that. <laughs> um, got an email from Lorna, who's Mike's uh, PR. I thought I should let you know uh, that Mike has been in hospital for the last fortnight and still there after fracturing his fibula and tibia we'd like people to think it was a result of breaking up a fight in a bar or last it's shackled to present a certain goal but the truth is he had a bad fall on a slippery step anyway one of the questions you asked during the interview was whether or not he'd ever been recognized by his voice and he didn't have an answer however in the first week of it being in his hospital ward the curtains drawn at the side of the bed the patient next to him heard him talking to one of the notices and called out I know your voice. So there we go. <laughs> Mike Ingham has had his voice recognised. Currently, he's got scaffolding around his neck, which looks like a particular bad accident with Meccano. But uh, he's doing well. So uh, get well soon to Mike Ingham. Get well soon, Mike. That is uh, all we've got time for. The quiz is back next series. We're, re- we're giving it a rest because um, it's had a Virgil van Dyke style injury, hasn't it, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> That's what's happened to the quiz. <laughs> It will come back, but it will have lost a yard of pace. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. Our Zoom show is on Sunday. You can buy tickets on our social media or sign up as an XJ8 member on Patreon and you'll get all tickets to all Zoom shows free plus lots of other stuff. Chris, anything to add? Nothing aside from I cannot wait for the Ivo Graham, Alex Brooker derby. It is going to be magnificent. We'll see you uh, on Sunday. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. Go let! Hit let! Hit let over the top! This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8am. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease. 
and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.